Uh, we pray for more opportunities this week. We thank you for the opportunities that we've had. Um, and we just pray for the Browns with, um, with uh, Jenny in particular, oh Lord God, that you would um, just give, thank you for the conversations that have already happened and pray that that would continue, pray that you would work on her heart and just the truth that she's heard over many years would, uh, you would, you would uh, uh, germinate that seed, oh Lord God, in a way that, that honors you. Uh, just thank you for Tony's interaction with Adam and just pray that you would, um, that that would provoke um, the desire to come and attend and uh, we would pray uh, for that, oh Lord God. Help us to uh, love our neighbors, um, to love our enemies, and to love them with the, with the gospel, oh Lord God, as we speak of you and we exalt you. Lord, help us this morning. We, we come to speak of you and to um, have our faith seek understanding of you, Holy Trinity. And Lord, uh, it, you have revealed much, and yet there are things you have not revealed. We want to speak reverently of you. Um, and pray that you would be honored in our conceptions of you. May they be right. May they be in accord with Scripture. Um, and we just we just ask for help this morning in your name. Amen. Uh, there's a quote from I don't have it right in front of me, but there's like a quote from Augustine, um, and he wrote this big old treatise on the Trinity. And one of the things he says is like, there's no doctrine where you're uh, if you mess up, uh, it's as dangerous, right? Uh, in a lot of ways, you could trace all heresies back to a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Um, and so even as we seek to investigate the scriptures and uh, understand what they're saying, we, it's like walking a knife edge, um, and you're just always praying, uh, Lord, I really want to think of you rightly. I really want to relate to you rightly. I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> um, and uh, so we just in that spirit, we continue this morning. Uh, so what we've done so far in talking about the Trinity, we basically kind of did a, uh, you know, we went through Old Testament, New Testament. I picked not every passage we could go to, but just a selection of key passages uh, that essentially affirm there's one God, there's, there's one God, Yahweh, and no other. Uh, there's also, especially as we get to the New Testament, we can say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And we can also say the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons from one another, and that's kind of where we ended. That's what we can say from the biblical, that's what we can say so far, let's put it that way, from the biblical text. Uh, just to do um, maybe one, one or two more verses just on uh, kind of seeing the, 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 the triadic, uh, the Trinitarian patterns in the New Testament. Let me take you to a couple passages, one we've already gone to and we keep going to, it's um, in this Matthew 28, um, 19. But it's worth revisiting and reminding us. Um, someone read Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Okay. So again, just for emphasis, we've said this before, but what do we see here about the Trinity, or at least the triune triadic pattern? I want to put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Name, singular, uh, and then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, and notice what it's connected with. It's connected with baptism, right? When someone is being brought into the church, the visible church, uh, that's, it's, it's a representation of you're brought, being brought into the ownership, the authority, uh, the family, in a sense, of the, the triune God, Right? So it's not just, oh yeah, cool, there's the Trinity, but it's also connected to what we do um, as, as a church. 
And that's what you really see in the New Testament. You know, we've been highlighting, oh, see the Trinity, see the Trinity. But it's always connected to the life of a church. Uh, let's, let's do another one. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. This one's not as common, I don't think. Um, but when you start kind of, you're attuned to this, uh, you start seeing it all over the place. You really do. Um, as far as talking about uh, the Trinity. Um, okay, so let's, someone read 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Okay, so where do we see the Trinity? Yeah, so spirit, who's empowering people, uh, distributing gifts. Uh, okay, so we got the spirit. Uh, where is the Father and where's the Son? Yeah, the Lord is typically reserved for Jesus. Not exclusively, but it, when, when Paul is using that term, he typically means Jesus. He's talking about the Son, all right? Where do we see the Father? God. Typically, when the term God is used in the New Testament, it is 90, well, okay, we'll be careful about statistics. A high percentage of the time, uh, it is referring to the Father, okay? So we see even in this. And what's it related to? We've got the tr Trinity here, but what's it all related to? In this context. Gifts, yeah, spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of the church, right? That the Trinity is involved um, in even gifting um, so that it's for the, um, the gift of the church, right? There are many other passages we could go to. Maybe I'll go to one more, and I'll point you to a couple others that you can look up on your own. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, how the letter ends. Uh, Paul says this to the Corinthian church, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, right? So again, we see that. Uh, interconnected with the life of the church, interconnected with things like grace and love and fellowship. Um, and so it's just another triadic pattern, right? You wouldn't necessarily go to this verse first to prove the Trinity, but you see it. You see um, the triune God interacting and working together in his three persons to, um, uh, to, to give life, really, uh, and love and grace and all of these things. Uh, other passages that you could go to, we're not going to go to them just to see this. Um, and I, I, I bet as you read the New Testament, you're going to pick this up more and more. But uh, Ephesians 1, that long sentence from like 1, 3 through 14, talks about how God predestined, the Father predestined, the Son redeemed, the Spirit seals, right? So we see it again. Uh, Revelation 1 um, talks about... Uh, who is speaking? It's uh, the, um, the one who is and was and is to come in reference to the Father. Uh, then you see it's from Jesus Christ. And then you see the seven spirits, which I take to mean the, the one Holy Spirit who is empowering the seven churches, uh, which is what um, is the context of that. So again, you see another triadic pattern. Okay. So again, that just reinforces what we've seen. There is one God, Yahweh, and is no, there is no other. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. 
And third, the Father, Son, and uh, Spirit are distinct persons. So you need those three affirmations at a base level to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, right? There's one God, Yahweh, and no other. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons from one another. That, you know, that's a nice way in three sentences, essentially, to summarize the basics of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? Before we go any farther, uh, what questions do you have? Okay. Now, like we said last week in the way we ended, that's kind of the basics uh, in a sense, right? We need to start there. But uh, we're left with all sorts of questions, some of which we may be able to answer and some of which we may not. Just because we ask a question and want to know more about God doesn't mean he's revealed that to us, right? We have to understand that. But uh, here are our questions. What does this mean? (laughs) Like, what does that even mean, Uh, those three statements? And to follow up with that, how are they one? How are the three persons one? And how are they three? Um, How do the three relate to one another? And we've talked a a little bit about that, but we're going to talk more about it. And then the the final question is, okay, if that's who God is, how do we relate? What is the proper way of relating to this one and true God? So now what we're going to do um, is we're going to, we've got the basic statements, but we want to start at least tackling what can be said uh, from the scriptures, and we want to be careful about the relations between the persons. Okay, so that's where we're going next. So we've got three persons, each of whom is fully God. We understand that. Uh, and there's one, one God, uh, one, uh, one God, Yahweh. But we want to start diving into, well, okay, how does the Father relate to the Son? How does the Son relate to the Spirit? How does the Father relate to the Spirit? How does that work? Um, and so we want to start working on that. And where we're going to start is um, the relationship between the Father and the Son. The relationship between the Father and the Son. Uh, in some ways, that's the easiest. Be, um, <laughs> Relatively speaking, uh, because um, there's, we have a lot of data about that. Now, if you were to go to one book in the New Testament to discuss the relationship between the Father and the Son and their triune relationship, I would propose there's one book that you would probably primarily go to. Not exclusively, but primarily. What book do you think that would be? John. <laughs> yeah, John is that book, right? I mean, he just gives us so much information. So let's start with this. Uh, when we talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son, we start with this. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Father eternally begets the Son. Go to John 1. Go to John 1. Now, in the John, John 1, I mean, obviously sets the tone for uh, the whole book. Um, and it also gives us kind of the ground rules in a lot of ways for beginning to understand uh, the, the eternal relationships between the Father and the Son. Um, you know, what, what is, what, just to remind ourselves, in 1 1 through 3, what do we see about that relationship? We've been here before, but 1 1 through 3, what have we got? Yeah, yep, exactly, right? So we have the Word. Uh, the word, if you have a word, and he's alluding to Genesis 1, right? Um, you have a speaker, the Father, and you have a word, okay? Um, and we understand that both the speaker is God and the word was God. They're, and they are together. They are distinct. They are equally God 
and they are together, okay? Um, so we get that. But even that idea of a speaker and a word contributes at least to the imagery of begetting. But John develops it because, skip down to verse 14. Someone read verse 14. Okay, how else? Um, so, glory is of the only Son from the Father. That's ESV. Uh, what does NASB have? Okay, only begotten from the Father. That's NASB. Uh, KJV if, or NKJV should have only begotten as well. Um, now, uh, why, is it, why does ESV say only Son, and why does the NASB say only begotten? Uh, because there's this dispute on this word that John uses called monogenes, um, and uh, over the past, let's say, 100, 120, maybe even 140 years, uh, uh, lexicographers, those who look at Greek and how Greek words are used, had this debate of saying, uh, it doesn't seem like the word actually means only begotten. It means um, something like unique or one and only. So in a lot of the new modern translations, including the ESV, um, you're going to see that language of only or one and only or unique which is true, that is communicated with that word. However, recently scholars have um, done some excellent work and now think uh, actually only begotten is like correct. If you look at like all the Greek literature that uses that word and it's used outside of the New Testament uh, and related forms of that word, it's pretty clear that we're talking about begetting, okay? Um, like in a, in, in a non-theological sense, uh, like biological begetting, okay? Now, there is a uniqueness to it, because even in Hebrews 11:7 it talks about Isaac as the only begotten, same word, of Abraham. Well, you think about that, and it's like, well, what's going on there? Because he had Ishmael, and then he has another, other children by Keturah, and so what's going on there? Well, uh, in, that, in that context, what's being stressed is uniqueness, but arguably what John is stressing is the begottenness, right? So it's not like either or, it just depends on where the word is used, Okay. Um, so, but at the very least, that gives us some indication that the Father begets the Son. He is the only begotten. Uh, we can see this again in verse 18. Read verse 18. Okay, so... We look at this verse before, we get our word monogenes again, um, and only begotten God. Uh, and that makes sense given the fact that what John just said in 1, 1 through 3, right? The word was with God and the word was God. So now he's talking about the word in another way, and he's talking about the word as only begotten God. Um, and so, again, this gives us a hint that we're talking about the Father's eternal begetting of the Son, um, and we even see that here because that relationship is eternal, right? Uh, we, we can see it's eternal in 1, 1 through 3, but we can also see it's eternal here. Who's at the Father's side or in the Father's bosom? This is an intimate relationship um, that has been in existence for all eternity, but is it a relationship of begetting? The Father begets eternally the Son, okay? Uh, you can see this in John 3. Go to John 3. Uh, famous verses. Uh, someone read 316 through 18. 
Not just 316, 316 through 18. Jim, would you mind reading that since you got the NASB? Okay, so what do we see here? Again, our topic right now is the eternal begetting of the Son. So what do we see here kind of in relation to that? Yeah, God sends him. So that's, that's a corollary. That's parallel. Maybe it's, it's parallel with the idea of this language of only begotten, right? Uh, only begotten Son, but the only begotten is sent, which means he was only begotten before he was sent. Right? This is a relationship that has existed for all eternity. Okay? Um, so this is, um, again, just part of the evidence um, for this idea of eternal generation. Okay? Yes, Julie. So- Well, um, everything that, like, whoever God is, like, he, he, um, he is who he is by himself first. Now, obviously, um, God has always had a plan. Uh, he always knows, right, that he's going to create and, and, and all of that. But he is, I mean, um, the son does not depend on the creation, right, right? nor the spirit. Um, God is who he is in himself first, irregardless of what he's going to do with creation. Does that help? So he is for himself. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's necessary. It's not like God has an option or the father has like, it's, um, the son's existence is necessary. Um, and that's, uh, that's actually a kind of using that term philosophic in a philosophical sense. Uh, he, God necessarily exists. Well, let's start back up, right? God necessarily exists. Of necessity, God is. Like, nothing exists apart from God, right? So he is who he is in himself. Um, And so what we see, especially revealed, what's cool about this, if we were to back up to 118, right, one of the things that's said about the Son is the Son explains the Father. So part of the reason Jesus comes is to not only save people, but to what he'll say in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom they've sent, and he's sent to reveal and to explain the Father. So you start with the triune life, uh, and then and what we find out, um, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but is the Father eternally loves the Son, and the Son eternally loves the Father, and same thing with the Spirit. There's an eternal love relationship between all three persons, and what does love do? Love loves to do what's best for others. To the point where the Trinity, out of overflow of joy and love, creates. To then sweep God's people, those born of God, as John will say in, in 1, 1, 12 and 13, uh, into that triune life. 
So the, the, the Trinity and who the Trinity is, they've just always been that way. And they've always loved one another. And because they love one another, really they have um, spilled over in their love to create and to sweep up people into that love. Um, and so it's not that the Son is, is the Son because of creation. It's the Son is who the Son is, and the Spirit is who the Spirit is, and the Father is who the Father is. And then from that, creation and even God's people are entered into that. Does that help? Yeah, good question. Very good question. Okay. Um, so we're still developing this, this idea of eternal generation. Uh, the, the Son never began to be, Okay. Uh, otherwise, he would be God. He would be a created being. But the Father eternally begets the Son. Um, and we, we're, we're still developing passages to, to see that. Um, let's um, jump out of John just briefly. Go to Hebrews. We'll come back to John. But let's go to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 1. And someone read 1, 1 through 3. Now, apart from the use of the term son, you might say, well, there's no indication of anything like begetting or eternal begetting in here, at least on an initial read. However, there is a statement in here that does illumine um, a, a little bit of, of this idea. What do we, where do we see that? What could illumine our idea of eternal begetting? What's that? Uh, that's part of it. So that there, there's this sense in which Having created the world, the Son is appointed heir. So that gives us some indications of the relationship between the Father. But that doesn't necessarily mean begetting, right? We're talking about particularly this idea of the Father begetting the Son. There you go, right? There you go. Uh, and even the idea before it, right? The radiance of the glory of God. Glory in the New Te well, the Old Testament and the New, has this idea, gener I mean, has the idea of a lot of things. But one of the things that's strongly connected with it, and it's probably in play here, is the idea of brightness, <laughs> right? So if you think of the sun, just as a way of illustration, you've got the sun, and then you've got the radiance of the sun. Now, those things are distinct, aren't they? Um, there, there's the sun and the source of that radiance, and then there's the radiance itself. And what is happening here is the author of Hebrews is using that illustration to talk about the relationship between the father and the son. So just like you've got the sun and the light being distinct, but intimately and inseparably related, um, that gives us a clue on this eternal relationship of eternal begottenness. Okay? But then we get this follow-up statement that Kevin pointed out. Um, he's the exact imprint of his nature. And uh, this, is the, this is the Greek word character. Uh, and it's the idea of like when you impress a coin, you stamp a coin, like uh, the mint, I, I want to go to the mint someday. I've never been to the mint, but like the, you know, you imagine one of those those big old dies, right? And it bang presses uh, the image on the coin, 
and it's supposed to represent that die. Well, here, it's the exact imprint of what? Well, and what does it say? His nature, right? So this goes back to even what we saw in John 1. Uh, the word was with God, but the word was God. In other words, all that the Father is, the Son is by nature, right? They share the same nature, and that's what we see here. The exact imprint, the exact impress of the Father's nature is given to the Son, which correlates with this idea of eternal begottenness, right? The Father is begetting the Son from all eternity, um, and is in, through that uh, impressing all of his nature onto the Son, okay? Uh, we, now let's go back to John and see more of this. Go to John 5. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Patricia. Yes, the his there, so like his glory or his nature, that would be God. That's referencing the Father. Uh, but, when we're, but it's describing the Son. He is the, the Son is the radiance of the glory of the Father. Um, he is the exact imprint, of, the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Yeah, yeah, good question. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, Eden. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same idea. Um, if we were to, t- and what's beautiful about this is Christ is, so if we were to take Colossians 1, talking about Christ as the image of God, Christ uh, bec- is the image of God in two senses. In his divine, eternal nature, he is the exact imprint, the exact image of God, right? Um, when he takes to him, when the eternal son takes and adds to his divine nature a human nature, because the son, the person of the son, is the exact imprint of God, he is enabled to become the perfect image bearer of God in a human sense, which is what humanity was designed to be. So because the eternal son has that perfect imprint, right, of God's uh, nature, and he's the perfect image bearer, when he becomes human, right, he is enabled uh, to be a perfect image bearer as a human, which is exactly what humanity was designed to be, which allows us, right, to be truly humans uh, in relation to Jesus, right, in that sense. So there's kind of, there is a humongous play on that idea uh, in the New Testament, so that's a good observation, okay? Now, going back to John 5, uh, again, I'm just kind of picking passages that illuminate our understanding of this relationship. Uh, look at John. So uh, let's look at John five and um, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's do five twenty five through twenty six, and we're going to focus on twenty six. Okay, focus on verse 26. What does that say? He granted the son life. 
Yeah, he granted the Son life. And some people debate, well, is that, you know, is that speaking of the Son and his incarnate um, life, or is it speaking uh, eternally? I tend to think it's more in the eternal sense, that the Father, and that matches, it does match with what's going on in chapter 1, right? That the Father grants to the Son life. The Father has life in himself. What does that mean? He is, he is, he's totally, he is, right? Um, he is, he's never not been, he just is, he necessarily is, right? He's the fundamental reality, and then what? He conveys, he grants, he gives that life to the Son. So um, the Father is unbegotten, but the Son is begotten. Uh, the Son has the same nature as the Father. Um, that, that nature comes from the Father. Um, so it truly is a real Father-Son relationship. It is the doctrine of eternal generation. Uh, you can see this one other place, six, just a page or two over, 657, 657. one may not be just as clear, but it's still, I think, talking about the same idea. So I'm going to read 657. Okay, so what's the idea? Yeah, the Father is the source of life for the Son, and in turn, in a different sense, we, uh, um, we find life in the Son, in a different way. Right? Not in the same way that the Son does with the Father, but um, in a similar way. Okay? Um, so that's the, when we say that the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, uh, he is begotten from all eternity, not created. So if you were to look at the Nicene or Nicene-Constantinople Creed, Nicene Creed 325, it gets updated in 381. Uh, it's going to say the Son is, uh, I should have quote. I should have dug it up and quoted it for you, but you guys can look it up. Uh, that the Son is begotten, not made. So when we talk about this begottenness, this is not creation. It is really begottenness, but it is not creation because we, we know that to be true because the Son shares the same nature as the Father. Yes, Susan. Yes, yes, yes. Kind of, yeah, I mean, and, uh, yeah, and this is where, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you hold to a um, atemporal view of God or uh, a temporal view of God like I do, right? The idea is this action never started. This action of begetting has never begun. It's always been, it always will be, but it is a real communication of the Father's essence and nature to the Son. So the Father is unbegotten, uh, but the Son is begotten. Um, and he has his life as God from the Father. Um, and the, the key in this, and what was debated with, you know, at Nicaea, etc., um, and is still debated, um, that does not imply any sense of ontological. Now, that's a fancy word, okay? You guys ever heard the word ontological? Uh, ontological means, like, in relation to being or essence, Okay, so we would say there's no ontological subordination or inferiority of the son. They are both equally God, 
John 1, 1 through 2 says that. Uh, uh, the Son is as equally God as the Father is God. But there's still a conveyance, a communication, uh, an impression of the, the, the Father's life on the Son from all eternity. It's truly begetting, but it's eternal. It never has a beginning, never has an ending. Um, and so the Son is not created in any sense. Yes. That usually is a right. Parents, yes. Yes. Well, it, I think what God is doing, right? So God is the source of language. He communicates within Himself, but He to con, to convey to us what that, some of what that relationship is like. He is using this language of only begotten to 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 indicate. It's true begetting, but not in the way that it's different from the way we would beget, right? Because, like you say, uh, for us, there's a moment of beginning. There's a moment, there's a lag, to use your word, right? This is eternal. This is eternal begetting. So this is where, like, the Hebrews 1, 3 really helps us, right? Where he is the radiance of the glory of God. The sun is the source of its radiance, they're inseparable, but that's a continuous thing, right? They're distinguishable, but inseparable. Uh, and similarly, the Son is distinguishable from the Father, but the Son is the radiance of the, fa- the, the, the Father's glory. And so that kind of helps fill out the notion of what do we mean by eternal begetting. It's an eternal reality, never had a beginning, will never have an end, will never cease. Um, and through that eternal begetting, the Son has his deity, Uh, It's the character, the nature of the Father being passed on in such a way that there is no inferiority of essence or nature in the Son. He is truly God, just as truly God as the Father is, but he has that deity through the begetting. Your mind smoking yet? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So then we see it as begetting because we were in time and it yeah. was time to beget. Yeah. But it's still God's type and shadow, just like how we see the temple or anything sure. like yeah. that. You know, it's the way God set things up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. We, and we just, um, as humans, we have only viewed it from this side of eternity. Right. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, and it's true revelation. And, this is where we go back to John 1. Part of the son's, his job, part of the good of the good news is revealing the Trinitarian life, right? And so this is true. We ha- all we, what we have to go by is what the scriptures say as far as revelation. We can't go beyond that. Um, so what we are doing is we are listening to what the son and inspired authors of scripture, like the apostle John, are saying about the son and the father. It's like, hey, this is, here's the language that accurately, though not comprehensively, describes the triune life, right? Remember what we said one of, uh, way back uh, several weeks ago? It cannot be wrong to talk about God in the way that the scriptures themselves talk about them as long as we are interpreting it according to proper hermeneutics and the authorial intent. And so that's what we're doing. It's like, well, it seems like uh, from what we are seeing in all these passages, 
that, yeah, we can really say the Son is truly begotten of the Father, not created. So the Father is truly a Father, and the Son is truly a Son um, from all eternity. Okay? Yeah, Julie. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. And that's what the Arians, that's what the Arians held to, right? Is that the son has a certain sort of divinity. They would even say that. Uh, they would use the term, so um, you've probably heard this before, um, homoousios. Usios is the Greek word for like stuff, right? Like just. Uh, or nature or essence. Um, and so what the Arians would say is, we're happy to affirm that the son, son is homoousios, by which they meant the son is like the father. And they would even say he's a certain sort of divine person. But they would still see him as inferior in terms of his being, in terms of his essence, to the father, Right? And so the Nicene Council used the term homoousios, which is same. Same stuff. Uh, Whatever the Father has as far as his divine nature is the same stuff that the Son has as far as his divine nature. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Welcome to multiple centuries of Christian teaching on the Trinity. Yes. Okay. Well, I think what gotten is what you're saying, okay, they, they kind of can eat that up to a certain point, and then they get away with it, and now new scholars are saying, now yeah. that could be gotten. I'm s- well, well you're, so you always have to think about, like, what are we bound by? We're bound by the text, right? And so the, the scholarly struggle over, and it's not, let me be clear, the doctrine does not hinge just on that word. Okay, the doctrine does not hinge on the word monogenes because we have John 5.26, which says, because the Father has life in himself, he has granted the, the, the Son to have life in himself. So it doesn't all hinge on that one word. I almost like that better. I want to go back to the actual original. Yeah, well, and that's the debate. Get away from well, but the, what this, the argument is, is what originally did it convey? And so, like, you've got guys um, late 19th century who are saying, no, 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 no. There's no sense of begottenness. It's, it's uh, only. And then that's, that's carried the day in scholarship for, the, let's say, the last 100, 120 years. And now you've got people who are doing, uh, they're revisiting it and doing a better job. We get better tools and even just the sheer compilation of data from Greek. I mean, what we have at our fingertips is incredibly better. I mean, Greek outside of just the Greek of the Bible, right? And what you see, if you are doing that, is the term clearly, in most instances, has the idea of begetting. And so then, um, uh, and you know, I I preached John 1, I think, for Christmas, obviously not this last year, but the year before, and I preached it as only or unique. And now if I was to preach it again, I would say, well, it's, it's begotten, because the evidence, the lexical evidence, points better in that direction. Again, it's not so much 
So, so that's why we're wrestling, you know, kind of undergirding like our translations and our uh, even our, our Greek text and all of that is this under trying to understand like what do these terms mean, right? The good news is, right, whether you whether you whether you are you know convinced, oh, that's only or only begotten, the doctrine itself does not hinge on that reality. I think what I'm struggling with is the very nature of, of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. You know, right. With a cause and effect, there is in it in that the nature of that concept a first something there first. Yeah, I would have no problem saying the father causes the son. Yeah, and I think that's what. Right, there's no temporalness to it, there, or there's no temporal starting itness to it. Right, that's the key. When we have a cause and effect, when we have a cause and effect, there's a temporal delay. Of, usually, right? Um, you might be able to contrive some instances where there is no temporal delay, but that's what we think of. But that's not how you think about this begetting. Uh, it never has a beginning. It never has an ending. But it is a true. I think you could argue it, um, uh, a true cause and effect, uh, but not in the sense that any inferiority of, of, of being or essence to the sun. It's a true begetting, but not a, an, a, an independence. I mean, John 5, 26, right? Because the Father has life in himself, he is granted, he is given the Son to have life in himself. That's true, uh, but in such a way that there is no, there's no diminishment of the Son's deity. Yes, Tony. So a very long time ago, I asked myself a question reading scripture. Why does God need a son? Because when we kind of think outside of the context of humanity and the way that we do things, give birth, Mm -hmm. all these definitions that God has given us in our context, that's very intriguing Mm -hmm. to have a son. Mm -hmm. And I would just, re- I would reverse the causality there. It kind of goes back to Julie's question earlier. 
Um, the sun is not the sun because of creation in any sense. No, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay. I just want to make sure that we're guarding that. that yeah. But it, it, uh, it is, um, you know, the, the son is who he is and, uh, in relation to the father. But then in that creation, there is a correspondence to, uh, you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, there's, there's a correspondence. Yeah. Right. The way I look at it is the term begotten gives us a clue to the start of understanding the relationship between the father and son. It is a true begottenness, but in such a way, but in a way that is different from any human begottenness, right? It is eternal, it never has a beginning, it never has an end, it never has a cessation in between. It's continuous, right? Um, which is, you know, you know our, heart, our minds begin to smoke. But that's part of why, you know, God does this, right? Is that, okay, there is a, there is a genuine creator-creature divide, and when we see how amazing... Uh, God is, and he's revealing himself. And why does, why does he reveal himself? Like, why does he tell us this stuff? So that we know him. Remember, that's the whole title of this thing we're doing, right? Knowing God. And we stand in awe of him, and we delight in him. So when we see the Father be eternally begetting the Son, um, and then those two have an eternal relationship of love, right? And then they want to, then they're, they work together along with the Spirit, to sweep up creatures into that eternal love, that's amazing, right? And it brings so much more, like, uh, when we talk, you know, what's amazing about John, John talks about the Son is sent, we've talked about this before, John talks about the Son is sent from the Father, he talks about the Spirit is twice sent, once from the Father through the Son, the Spirit is sent. And then what does uh, Jesus say, I just read this this morning actually, in John 20, talking to the disciples, as the Father sent me, so send I you. We have a song that we sing about that, right? And the idea is the Trinitarian relations ground our mission. What we do in missions and evangelism is grounded in the eternal relations of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is astounding, right? Uh, that we get to participate in that. It brings so much more um, depth um, to when we talk about doing evangelism or proclaiming the gospel. It's not just that we're proclaiming facts. It's that we want... Um, uh, go back to John 1 really quickly. We need to be done. But um, he, John says this from the outset. Um, I'll start in verse 9, John 1, 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but God. So here we have another begetting, but this one's different. This one is a spiritual begetting of God's chosen. The gift of the Father to the Son of a people. 
Uh, that's what gets unfolded through the book of John. So when we are going out and evangelizing, well, I don't know who the children of God are. I just don't. But what, what do we do? We proclaim the gospel uninhibitedly because we want, uh, we want to see those children of God, those chosen of God, experience, uh, and they will, by God's grace, experience um, that, that relationship as uh, adopted children um, who get to share in the love of the eternal God. So, uh, and that's what's beautiful about John. It's not just like it's theology. It's like, yeah, but that grounds like what you do as a church and as a people and as individuals, um, and it's amazing. So, okay, we're out of time. Um, we'll keep talking about this. I, I hope this is helpful, where the Trinity is just not this like some weird like doctrine, but it's like, oh no, this has really practical implications for how we think and live our Christian lives. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending the Son. We thank you for your eternal love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Father and the Son loving the Spirit, and the Spirit loving the Son and the Father, Lord. And now, as you say in John 17, Lord Jesus, that you're sweeping uh, your people into oneness, into love, and getting to share that and getting to share as adopted children in the triune life not in the same way, but in a, in a true way, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray, even as we gather um, here shortly, your people gather, I pray that they would be encouraged, uh, that they would rightly think of you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that they would pray to you vigorously, and that, Lord, as we hear your word preached and are then sent, that we would be sent out to proclaim the awesomeness of who you are as God. Lord, help us to convey you rightly and to convey your love rightly through the proclamation of the gospel. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.